You are listening to the Life Church Podcast. To learn more about Life Church, our gathering times at any of our central Indiana locations, or our Life Crew online, visit us at lifechurchin.com or follow the link in the description. Today's talk is from Pastor Kathy Eternell. Turn with me in the Word to 2 Samuel 13. It says, Now David's son Absalom. Now Absalom was the third son of David. Ammon is the one other son that we're going to be talking about today was his very first son. There was another son, and, and that one is only mentioned in Scripture, and we know nothing about him other than that. So here is Absalom, the third son, and he has a beautiful sister, and her name is Tamar. And Tamar means a palm tree. And if you remember arid country, when you would see a palm tree, that was always something symbolic of a place of rest, of, of water, of that which would be uh, able to meet a need that you might have. And so that she was looked upon as a very beautiful person. And Amnon was her half-brother. David's biggest problem was too many women in his life. That's a big problem for anyone. <laughs> who tries to follow in that because there are so many ramifications of that that come down through families. And so we see that, that David had actually about eight wives and quite a few sons, but these two are the ones we're talking about this morning. And it says that Ammon, her half-brother, fell desperately in love with her. Now, we have one word for love basically in the English language don't we we can say I love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or I love shrimp or I love my children or I love a particular thing that you might like to do I love to canoe we have one word but that word love means so many different things and in this particular case it certainly did not mean a great affection and an agape-type love for her. It was lust. He saw this beautiful woman. Well, who did that before him? Whose steps was he following yet? But his own father's. And he fell desperately in love with her. Now, Ammon, this son... His name actually means teacher or counselor. And, you know, I think it's interesting that hit this story becomes that which teaches us and counsels us as to what not to do. But it goes on to say he became so obsessed with Tamar that he became ill. Did you ever want something so much that you almost got sick because you couldn't have it? And that's where he was. He had to have her. He desired her so much that he could think of nothing else. There was got to be a way that he could have this woman. And it says she was a virgin. And Ammon thought he could never have her. Well, why? Because the law says you can't. The law says you were not to have incest. You were not to have a relationship. Now, did it happen early in, in the history of, of, of uh, the 
Hebrews, it did, because we know Abraham and Sarah. Sarah was his half-sister. We know that there was close relationship between Jacob and his wife because they were cousins. But that, as time, the, the aspect of the law said that was not what you were supposed to do. That was before the law. So he knew this was not the right thing to do. But Ammon had a crafty friend, his cousin, Jonadad. He was the son of David's brother, Shimea. And one day, Jonadad said to Ammon, what's the trouble? Why should the son of the king look so dejected morning after morning? And you know, I don't know about you, but cousins can be troublemakers. I, um, my, my grandchildren got me this little plaque and it says, Grandma's house, the place where cousins come to become best friends. And that can be very true. My grandchildren love each other, but I'll tell you what, cousins getting together can be trouble. And I have watched that over and over again. They can lead each other into things that they would not think about on their own. And he's got a cousin who's crafty. He's got a cousin who's going to say, no, don't you know who you are? You're the king's son. And which son? Number one. Who should be in line more than you in relationship to the throne? Shouldn't you have everything you want? Boy, don't you love to hear from people who kind of encourage you that you deserve certain things? But isn't that the tactics of the enemy to lead us astray? You deserve. Why shouldn't you have? This is what you like. And so there was this, this encouragement from his cousin. And, and then he says, um, so Ammon told him, I am in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Well, Jonadab said, I'll tell you what to do. Oh. Go back to bed and pretend you're ill. Then your when your father comes to see you, ask him to let Tamar come and prepare some food for you. Tell him you'll feel better if she prepares it as you watch and feed you with her own hand. Wow. He created a way that that Amnon might be able to get what he wanted. And he created a way that David, in his busy schedule, probably didn't even think twice about. You know, I, I thought about this, and, and sometimes when, when we think about our kids, we think about the fact that they're good kids, especially if you've tried to bring them up in the right way. And we become so blinded to the factor that our children are sinners. They're not perfect, even brought up in great homes. And given opportunity, the enemy 
can take them astray, and we as parents really need to be vigilant. We think, oh, our kids are going to go play with the deacon's kids. There'll be no problem. I can tell you stories about my kids with the deacon's kids. They're not perfect. Given opportunities that the devil would love to put in their way, they can make mistakes. And when we trust our children to be alone in certain situations, we're fools. David was a fool. He was not looking at the situation and what it could bring about. It says, so Ammon lay down and he pretended to be sick. And when the king came to see him, Ammon asked, please let my sister Tamar come and cook my favorite dish so I can watch. Oh, let it be with her hand. So David agreed and sent Tamar to Ammon's house to prepare some food for him. Now, one of the things you need to recognize is that these, these virgin daughters were guarded they were, they were put away separate from the people that could take advantage of them. But you wouldn't think it would happen in your own house. But it did. It says that he faked a sickness. He played on David's emotions. What could be the harm? If he'll feel better if she makes him food and feeds it with her own hand, what could be the harm? I mean, doesn't that sound like a nice thing to do for your brother? When Tamar arrived at Ammon's house, she, she went to the place where he was lying down so he could watch her mix some dough. And then she baked his favorite dish for him. And when she set the tray, the serving tray before him, he refused to eat. Everyone get out of here, Ammon told his servants. So they all left. Like father, like son. When young people look at their parents and there's been failure in the lives of their parents. Do you know what that does to them? It gives them opportunity to do even a little worse. You know, um, one generation may do something in moderation and the next generation will do it in excess. I came up in the 60s. And things were not too bad, but they were beginning to get bad. And then the 80s came in with that generation that looked at the 60s, and they began to do things a little bit more outside of the bounds of what God would have. And then you came into the 2000, 
And what have we gained and had come into our ways of living from that point on? And when we, you know, our, our grandchildren love to hear the stories of some of the things that we've done. And sometimes I, I say to my husband, let's not go into all the details. Because license can come. Even if you were one of those, those drivers that had a lead foot when you were young. You know what that gives your kids the right for? A lead foot when they drive? Whatever we do in moderation will be taken to excess generally in the next generation. And David, oh David, what did you do? And what did you give your children license to do? I remember when we were studying for the ministry, they used to tell us, whatever standard you sit, whatever that may be in, in, in the way you live, the way you dress, the things you do, whatever standard you sit, remember the people in your congregation will come in under that standard. So make sure you set your standards high. And the scripture talks about us being the example of the believer, doesn't he? And boy, sometimes our examples aren't great. David's example was awful. So what do we have as a result of things getting worse and worse? Well, look at some of the music that we have. And look at the movies. And look at the types of rebellion that we see in our world today. And look what our culture is producing. And look at the sexual norms, what, what seem to be absolutely taboo at one generation. My goodness, it's expected now. The homosexual behavior, abortion. My husband and I were sitting watching some programs on TV, and I said to him, can you imagine some of these commercials? I mean, in, in, there are things now that, that just get passed over like nothing that would have been <gasps> in the 60s. What's happened? It's the factor that when we fail, the next generation goes a little bit further, a little deeper. It says, and then he said to Tamar, now, now bring the food into my bedroom and feed me here. I wish Tamar would have said no. I wish she would have got that, if she had that inkling in her spirit, this was not the right thing to do. I wish she would have done it. Whether she's naive, I don't know. But it says that, so Tamar took his favorite dish to him. She did his favorite dish. But as she was feeding him, he grabbed her and demanded, come to bed with me, my darling sister. 
what looked like something that was going to be so innocent. Not being cautious enough by dad, first of all, and now by her, in a sense, has led to a situation that she could be overcome. She goes and says, no, my brother, she cried, don't be foolish, don't do this thing to me. Such wicked things aren't done in Israel. Where could I go in my shame and you would be called one of the greatest fools in Israel? So she comes and she says, wait a minute, we're Israelites. We're the people of God. Things like this don't happen among us. It's not supposed to be. And we know that from the book of Leviticus, it, it came against this aspect of incense. But then she says, and what will happen to me? And in that particular time, especially, the aspect of virginity was probably the, the greatest prize that a woman had that she could give, the greatest gift she could give to her future husband. In fact, one of the things that had to happen, a woman almost had to, she had to prove she was a virgin or he could get rid of her as soon as they're married. Because one of the things that was required, they were to take the sheets off the bed of that first sexual relationship because there was the bleeding associated with it. And then those sheets were to be folded up and given to the father of the bride. That if there was ever a time after that, that that young man would accuse her of not being a virgin, he would have in his possession that which proved she was. Now that's, you know, that kind of sounds like, wow. But at that time, that's just how valuable it was. And a bill of divorcement could have been given immediately if that was not the case. She said, my shame will be great. I will be considered valueless for another man to take me if that's the case. She knew how important this was. And you're going to look like a you're going to look like you were senseless. So she appealed to him. She's trying to stall him off, so to speak. She's trying to get his attention. But you know, when we think about this, lust and reason are enemies. Lust and reason are enemies. When there's lust, no matter what you try to say, that person is not going to respond. And then she tries again to, to maybe buy some more time at this. She says, please speak to the king about it and he will let you marry me. Well, that was not to be done, but in ancient culture, cultures, that was done. And we talked about Abraham. And in some of the peoples of that time, that was done. We know that in, in many of the countries today, that relationship is allowed to happen, many of the religions. 
But Ammon wouldn't listen to her, goes on to say. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Men use love to entice a woman. Love in the factor that, boy, they come along and they open the doors for us, maybe, and they bring us flowers, and they bring, take us nice places, and they do a lot of various things that makes it look like they love us. And many young women fall for it. Because what do they come back with? If you love me, then you'll enter into this sexual relationship. And our, our culture even goes to the place that says, well, if you're engaged, it's okay. But in God's culture, it was never okay. Women use sex to gain love. We will submit to things we know are not right if we can get that person to love us. The manipulation that's involved. Lust and hatred are also close relatives, and we're going to see that. It goes on to say that suddenly Ammon's love turned to hate, and he hated her even more than he had loved her. Has it not been a proven thing that lots of times when a woman is raped, the next thing is she's murdered? Because what, when, what men think to be lust, or think to be love is really lust, then what happens when that's all over? turns to hate. And how many, how many young women have experienced the murder of their innocence? This is a hard portion, folks, to talk about. It says, she said, No, no, Tamar cried. Sending me away now is worse than what you have already done. Sending me away is now worse than what you have already done. According to the law, if a young woman was raped and It was in a situation where she could not get out of it. In other words, it talks about her being out in the country somewhere and she couldn't scream and nobody could help her. Then then the man was required to marry her. And he was required never to put her away. He could never divorce her. That was the requirement of the law. But Ammon wasn't about to have anything to do with what the requirement of the law would have been, and she knew it. And she said, what you've done to me now is worse. You won't even take me as a wife now. You hate me. 
says, so the servant put her out and locked the door behind her. Can you imagine, and just, just stop and think about this incident. Can you imagine what, how she might have gone? <laughs> I can't imagine that she would have gone without crying, without anger, without trying in some way almost to resist being thrown out of there, to try to get his attention. Do you realize what you've done? I know I was reading some of Pastor Nathan's notes, and he said maybe she was holding on to the door. Maybe she was being drugged out. We don't know. But I can't imagine her just walking out of that place. I would not have ever walked out of that place without emotion, without anger, without attempts to get attention. But it says that they not only put her out, they locked the door. But you know what they were saying to everyone or anyone that would hear about this? Well, she wasn't a virgin. She wasn't valuable. She had nothing. I'm casting her aside. That's what Ammon was saying by his action. It says, now, she was wearing a long, beautiful robe, as was the custom in those days for a king's virgin daughter's. But now Tamar tore her robes and put ashes on her head. And then with her face in her hands, she went away crying. They, I read one place that they said this robe was a robe of many beautiful colors. And only the king's virgin daughters would wear it. Now possibly it's even stained with the relationship that had just happened. And she runs into the streets, crying, gets dust, dirt, and puts it on her head, rips her garment, because none of this has value now. Her first sexual experience was a vow act. Her brother Absalom saw her and asked, is it true that Ammon's been with you? Oh, wonder where he got the idea it would be Ammon. Maybe he heard about what was being asked, possibly. Maybe he knew his half-brother. Maybe he knew the kind of man he was. And when he saw his sister and how she now looked, he came to the conclusion right away, it's got to be Ammon. He said, well, my sister, keep quiet for now since he's your brother. Don't you worry about it. Can you imagine? What a statement. Don't you worry about it. So Tamar lived in as a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. What was he saying? Even Ammon seems to, to just, or Absalom seems to just 
Okay, hold steady. Hold steady. It goes on to tell us, and when King David heard what had happened, he was angry. And though Absalom never spoke to Ammon again about this, he hated Ammon deeply because what he had done to his sister. Brothers, every girl needs a good brother. I remember when Danya was, was dating, and he, she was dating Mike at the time. Now, those of you who know my daughter and, and son-in-law. And Danya had just had a, a relationship with a guy that broke her heart. And our oldest son, Paul, sent what's Pastor Mike now, the most seething email about how his sister was to be treated. And she had three brothers, and let me tell you, those brothers, <laughs> you didn't want to cross anything. The first guy she brought home, we were sitting at the table having supper, and, and they said, you know what we're gonna, we've decided to do with the first guy that comes to, to date our sister? We're going to kill him and stuff him and put him at the stairs so that anyone else would say, is she worth it? Well, Pastor Mike was an only child. He was not used to brother-sister kind of situations, and he was floored. <laughs> I don't know if there was fear put into him. I don't know. But nonetheless, <laughs> when they got married, my son Paul, who had wrote the letter initially, wrote a song. And it was a song about it was sung to Mike at their reception. And it was a song that if you want to mine for a precious gem, you've got to mine down through the stones. And we were the stones that kept her pure for this day. Brothers are important. They need to stand up for their sisters. They need to protect them. And we find that, that Absalom though the situation was over, was not going to let this thing drop. And his father knows about it. And his father brings no justice. And I believe that this was the beginning of the hatred and the rebellion and the attitudes that were there between Absalom and David. We expect parents to stand up against injustice. And when they don't, when it's given almost a, a looking over, oh, he was angry, but he did nothing about it. A passive father. Why was he passive? Maybe he saw his own sins. Maybe he saw and felt like, I really don't have a whole lot I can say about this because I've done a whole lot worse. But that's no excuse, is it? It's no excuse for us to look at things that we've done in the past and we failed at and, and not come and deal with the situations that are true within our families. Father needs to stand up. 
The scripture gives us these bad examples. <laughs> you know, you'd say, wow, this story, I have to be there? But the scripture gives us these bad examples for a reason. Therefore, us to learn from the things that others have failed in. And it goes on to tell us that when I think about the whole aspect of how our Lord is so much different and does so much in relationship to the story to change the awfulness and the ugliness that happens as a result of our sin and of the consequences of our sins. God the Father is a God of justice. He cannot, because of who he is, allow sin to go on without it being dealt with. We know that that was the purpose for which Jesus came. He came to pay the price that none of us could pay to make things better. And you know, I think it's kind of interesting, as we saw Tamar going through the streets, beaten and broken and bleeding, isn't it a tremendous picture of who Jesus was for us? He came and he endured bleeding and brokenness he endured all of the hurt. He carried the cross. He carried our sin. He became what Tamar needed. He's the God that takes the failures in our life. And the thing that I think is so precious about him, he puts them into the sea of his forgetfulness to be remembered against us no more. We don't have that ability, do we? The things that we've done keep cropping up. I think that God, God puts those things into the sea of his forgetfulness and then he plants a no fishing sign there. We don't need to delve into all that mess that's under the blood no matter what's happened in our lives. And this morning, this could be very sensitive to, to folks sitting in this room. But the tremendous power of our Lord to bear our failures and the failures of others. What was the one thing that Jesus spoke from the cross when he carried all of that ugliness Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Do you know that when you have these kinds of, of hurt that come into your life, when you have been taken advantage of, when you're bearing a pain that was someone else's fault, He wants for you to forgive. That doesn't mean you excuse what they've done. And I trust that every one of you gets an opportunity to go through our freedom groups because it speaks about forgiveness. And forgiveness is not for the other person. Forgiveness is for you. 
to leave go of those things that the enemy has brought upon you or is allowed to happen to you. And you leave it to the Father, who is the judge of this whole earth, who will do right. You leave it to the one who says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. The one who's going to come and he's going to deal with this situation. But you give it up to give him opportunity to deal with it. And there's a lifting in our hearts. We don't ever see that, that Tamar gave it up. It says she remained a desolate woman for the rest of her life. But you know, one of the other beautiful things that I want to just share with you in relationship to the cross and to Jesus' life. Do you remember that Judas sold him out for what? 30 pieces of silver. And then he came back and he told the, 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 the chief priests and Pharisees, here, I'm giving you back this money because it, it, it's not right. He was innocent. I, he shouldn't be, be being crucified. And he threw the money down and they could not bring it about to take that money and put it back into the treasury. Do you know what they did with it? Do you remember? They bought a potter's field. Now, you know what a potter's field was? It was a place where they took all of the broken pottery that could not be repaired, and they threw it into this field. Well, it literally became a place where they would bury people who didn't have family or anyone to take care of them. But what I'm trying to get to tell you is that field was a place of dis that which was disregarded, that which was considered to be the last thing that could ever be repaired. But Jesus' blood bought the potter's field. Jesus' blood bought the potter's field. That means that it doesn't matter what brokenness we have had in our life. It doesn't matter that it's under the blood and we have been redeemed and we have been made brand new and he repairs and he restores and he can take the deepest hurts and he can heal us. And so today, I just want to encourage you. And it doesn't have to have been a sexual sin as this was. But all of us have been broken and hurt and taken advantage of and abused in so many ways. And we need to step up and say, I have to give that thing to you, Lord, because only you can do the healing. Only you can do the restoring. And so I'd like to encourage you today to just come and, and find a place of prayer. Even if you don't come to these individuals to share something, come and let's just gather because, Lord, we all, we've all experienced. You were encouraged by today's talk. Be sure to rate us, share with a friend, and hit subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you stream your podcasts. Our mission is simple. Come to life, connect to grow, find your purpose, make a difference. Thanks for listening to the Life Church Podcast.